Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who were taking him there. <clears throat> the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favour in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She called him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you bought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard this story, his, his wife had told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those he held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Now then, did you know that the dropout rate in the police is higher than it's ever been, particularly in the first few years of service? Now, there are lots of different reasons for that, but I think a big one is false expectations. Here's a recent advert by the Metropolitan Police. Do the job where anything is possible. Now it brings to mind all sorts of images of foot chases and really cool unmarked police cars and bashing down front doors and here we've got, you can barely see it, but the obligatory picture of some armed police on motorbikes. 
that's all the stuff you should expect when you join the police. And then you actually join the police. <laughs> now, it may well be that in time you get to do all of those things. But <laughs> I think a little bit of balance is needed. The truth is that before you ever pick up an enforcer, you'll probably have taken more statements than you can count. You'll probably have been to domestic disputes over whose turn it was on the Xbox or if the Christmas tree was put up too early. You'll have probably spent hours sitting outside custody waiting to book in your prisoner, trying to make small talk with someone who really hates you. You'll have spent time on scene guards where the only thing that stands between you and insanity is counting how many bricks there are in a wall. Oh, and you'll have to work shifts as well, where you'll discover that all your neighbours only ever mow their lawn when you're supposed to be sleeping after a night shift. Now, don't get me wrong, I loved being in the police. I've got some great memories from it, but it is about balance. I think that's true as well of being a Christian. I genuinely believe that there is no better news than the gospel, that Jesus brings life and meaning and hope and forgiveness and countless other blessings. But that doesn't mean that life is going to be easy or comfortable. When Jesus calls you to follow him, he's not just calling you to a comfortable, easy life. He's actually calling you to a battle. Not a physical battle against other people, but a spiritual battle against yourself, against sin and against the devil. When life is tough, I can often think to myself that I must be doing something wrong, that God must have left me. But that's just not true. In fact, we'll see in today's passage that God is always with his people, but it's often in and through hardship that we become most aware of that. The Joseph that we find in today's passage that Peter's just read to us seems like a completely different person to the Joseph we saw last week in chapter 37. Now last week we looked at this 17-year-old boy who'd grown up with a silver spoon in his mouth, who'd acted in such a way that his brothers hated him, that actually wanted to kill him and come very close to doing that, but instead they ended up selling him into slavery. I think that the Joseph here is completely different to that. And I think one of the reasons for that is Joseph begins to discover that the good things that God has given him are not his by birthright in some way. They're a gracious gift from God. He begins to recognise that being one of God's children is a gift of grace, an undeserved blessing. And that one of the ways that God chooses to bless us is through hard times. Joseph changes as he realises that following God is a call to join a battle. In this chapter, we're going to see Joseph fight against three things. Firstly, Joseph fights to trust God. Secondly, he fights against temptation. And thirdly, he fights the desire to defend himself. Now, in last week's passage, Joseph manages to alienate himself pretty much from his whole family. Even his dad, who loves him particularly, ends up saying, mate, put a sock in it. Would you mind keeping those dreams to yourself? That is a paraphrase of chapter 37. 
his brothers really have had enough. They come very close to killing him, but instead they sell him into slavery. Joseph is taken to Egypt where he's purchased by a man named Potiphar, who is a high-ranking military official. Here begins Joseph's first battle, the battle to trust God. Now chapter 39 is full of words like prosper, success and bless. And as a result, we're often quite quick to go, you know, bad stuff happened to Joseph, but God was using it for good. Now, that's absolutely true. And at the end of Genesis, Joseph is able to look back over his life and very clearly see that though bad things happened, God was working behind the scenes to bring about good from them. But we're not at the end of the story, are we? We've got to be careful that we don't dehumanise this story. I'm sure when Joseph arrived in Egypt as a slave, having been betrayed by his own brothers, he wasn't thinking, oh, it's all right, it'll all turn out for good. He must have been near breaking point. His life had been completely turned upside down. He'd been rejected by his family, betrayed by them, taken from his home and brought to a foreign land where seemingly he had no future and no hope. Now we know as the reader that good stuff was on the horizon, but the crucial thing to remember is he didn't. The question which I think we need to ask of this passage is what stops Joseph from completely breaking down? I think the answer is found in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. Did you know that that's actually the first time that God is mentioned explicitly in the story of Joseph? When life is good, when he had a great cloak and he was enjoying the favour of his father, God's not mentioned at all. It's not that God was absent during that time, the Lord had always been with Joseph, but sometimes it's not until everything else is stripped away that we realise that God was always with us. Because it's then we realise that we were never really in control at all. When life is going well, we can kid ourselves that we're the ones that are responsible for the good things we have. But how much control do you think Joseph felt like he had as he was sold sold into slavery? How much control do you think he had as he was sold to whoever would pay the highest price? Feeling out of control has got to be one of the worst feelings that we can experience. It's horrible. Joseph now has a choice. Will he fight to try and regain control, to try and fix things for himself? Or will he fight to trust the one who has always been in control? Now, I spent... 14 years in the police before I started working at Emmanuel. Eight of those were in armed policing, and that meant I had to go away quite frequently to do a lot of training. Now, when you arrive at training, the first thing you do is have a look around to see which instructors are going to be there. Because, largely speaking, you could break the instructors down into two groups. The first group, the good instructors, in my opinion, remembered what it felt like to be in your shoes. They had a genuine desire to see you improve at your job. Now, that didn't mean they took it easy on you. They put you through your paces. 
but they did it because they wanted to make you better. They were doing it for your good. Now, the bad ones, when you arrived, they looked at you like you were something on the bottom of their shoe. They seemed to find some strange pleasure in making life as difficult as possible for you. It felt like they actively wanted to see you fail and they set up scenarios which felt like there was no winning. The thing is that actually with both of these groups of instructors, the scenarios were usually equally challenging and difficult. What made all the difference in the world was knowing that one of them was putting you in a difficult place because they wanted to make you better. The other just seemed to enjoy watching you suffer. Behind Joseph's battle to trust God lies what I think is a crucial question. Did God really have Joseph's best interests at heart? Was God really for Joseph? He may well have been orchestrating events, but was he doing it for Joseph's good? A lot of you will know that Em's health, who's my wife, has not been very good these last couple of years. To watch someone that you love in pain is horrible. Now, I understand that God is in control and that he's able to bring something good out of something bad. But in the thick of it, the thought which often comes to my mind is surely there is an easier way. If you're in control and you love us, why is this so hard? When I feel like that, I try to remind myself if God is big enough and powerful enough to stop my suffering, then he's also big enough and powerful enough to have reasons for not doing it that I can't understand. Now that is solid logic, but sometimes we need more than logic. Sometimes like Joseph, the thing that I need is to know that God is with me. When life is hard, a philosophical answer will only get you so far. What I really need is a person. Well, what better person than the one whose name actually means God with us, Emmanuel. You might know him as Jesus. When I doubt that God is for me, I look to Jesus. And specifically, I look to the cross. I see how much he was willing to go through to rescue me. I see how he was able to make the, take the very worst thing in the whole of history and bring about the very best thing in the whole of history. I remind myself that it wasn't nails that held Jesus on the cross. It was love. God does not enjoy watching us suffer. He didn't enjoy watching Joseph suffer. But sometimes he'll put us through hard times for his glory and for our good. In those hard times, will you fight to put your trust in him? To recognise that he is always in control and he is always good. Do you know that one of the signs that you are truly engaged in that battle? You'll pray. Rather than doing all you can do to regain control of a situation, you'll pray. Maybe all you'll manage is, God, help me trust you. I believe, but help my unbelief. 
the incredible thing is, the more that we learn to do that, the more that we'll trust him. The more that we'll learn to lift our eyes from whatever situation we're facing to the one who is in sovereign control, to the one who loves you more than you could ever imagine. I think the, the lyrics of this song capture this wonderfully. The song goes, so when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. God, the battle belongs to you and every fear I lay at your feet. I'll sing through the night, God, the battle belongs to you. We see in this passage that Joseph does fight to trust God. But whilst that fight is still raging, another battle begins. This time it is a battle against temptation. Now Joseph seems to be doing everything right. He's trusting in God and more than that, He's even telling other people that the reason he's succeeding is because of God. Potiphar sees this and he gives him more and more responsibility until eventually, basically, Joseph is running what is probably the second most important household in the whole of Egypt, which, let's face it, makes it at the time the second most important household in the whole of the world. But as if that's not enough, apparently Joseph was quite the looker. Look at verse 6. He was well built and handsome, which interestingly enough is exactly the same Hebrew phrase which is used to describe his mum, Rachel. So she must, he must have had very good DNA. Now this does not go unnoticed by Potiphar's wife. In verse 7, she demands to Joseph, come to bed with me. Now Joseph was likely to be at this point in his late teens or early 20s. And here he was being propositioned by a woman who was probably very attractive. They were living in a culture where if one of the ruling class decided they wanted to sleep with their servants, then nine times out of ten it would happen. And Potiphar's wife wouldn't have wanted anybody else to find out about this, particularly her husband. So it would have been their little secret. Walking away for this temptation from Joseph was no small thing. And what makes it even harder is this wasn't just a one-off struggle. Look at verse 10. She spoke to Joseph day after day. This was a very real and a very persistent temptation. How did Joseph fight against this temptation? Well, here are three answers that I think come from the passage. Firstly, Joseph counts the cost. Potiphar's wife probably tries to convince Joseph that this was just a harmless bit of fun. However, in verses 8 and 9, Joseph rightly points out that this would do huge damage to her marriage, to the marriage of his master. As if that's not enough, it would also be an abuse of the trust which had been given to him by his boss. Joseph recognised that giving in to this temptation would have huge relational fallout for all those involved. I guess the question is, when we face temptation, do we count the cost? Do we consider the implications if we give in? For example, the taboo subject of watching pornography. We may well feel like that's just something that affects no one else but us. But have you considered the way that it is changing you? 
Have you considered the way that it is changing the way that you look at other people? The way that your brain works? When you're tempted to drink too much, have you considered the way that it is changing your mood? The way that it is affecting your relationships with others? The way that it is affecting your health? Like Joseph, have you counted the cost of giving in to your temptations? Secondly, and quite simply, Joseph avoids Potiphar's wife. Sometimes the best way to avoid temptation is to avoid the situations where we know it's going to arise. Again, look at verse 10. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now, it wasn't sinful for Joseph to be in the same room as Potiphar's wife, but he knew that if he was, temptation would arise. Are you so invested in your fight against sin and temptation that you would avoid situations where you know temptation will arise? If you know that when you scroll through social media, you have an unhealthy habit of comparing yourselves to others, be that unfavourably to yourself, beating yourself up, or unfavourably to other people and looking down on others, have you considered just not using social media? There's nothing wrong with social media in and of itself, but if you know it leads you to temptation, will you consider just avoiding it altogether? Thirdly, and most importantly, Joseph fixes his eyes on something better. Those first two ways of fighting against temptation are really important. But without this step, we stand no chance of winning victory. In verse 9, Joseph says, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph knew that this was a sin against Potiphar, against Potiphar's wife and against himself. But first and foremost, it was a sin against God. We often think of fighting temptation as fighting a battle to suppress the things that we want. However, real victory against temptation is not found in suppressing our desires. It's found in taking our desires and fixing them on something better. We often think of sin like we think of the rules and regulations of our country, like our own laws. We know that we shouldn't break them, but our motivation for not breaking them is really just to avoid punishment. When I see a speed camera, I slow down and check my speedometer, not because I care deeply about the speed limit, but because I don't want to get a fine and three points on my license. This isn't how Joseph thinks of sin. He thinks of it in terms of a relationship. Joseph wasn't just thinking about punishment. He didn't want to damage the relationship that he had with God. He valued the relationship above what was tempting him. Something greater had captured his imagination and his heart, a supreme desire that reordered all his other desires. To the degree that you see how much God loves you and how much he was willing to pay to rescue you is the degree that you will fight against temptation. To really fight against temptation, don't just look at Joseph as an example of what to do, 
Instead, fix your eyes on the one who Joseph ultimately points to. The one who is truly beautiful and laid down his life so that we could live. Don't just suppress your desires. Fix them on something better. Fix them upon Jesus. Now, once again, faithfulness does not mean that life will be easy or comfortable. In fact, because of Joseph's faithfulness, fighting against temptation, he now faces yet another battle. This time, the battle to defend himself. Verse 11 and 12 says, One day Joseph went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him, Potiphar's wife, by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Now, if I was able to give Joseph one piece of advice, it would be this. You need to rethink your wardrobe, Joseph. His fancy robe played a big part in him getting thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And now his cloak was going to get him thrown into prison. Potiphar's wife had had enough of Joseph turning her down. So she decides she's going to accuse him of raping her or trying to. She convinces the other servants and then she convinces Potiphar of the made-up story and Joseph ends up being carted off to prison. Now in this chapter, we've seen Joseph had to battle to trust God. He fought against temptation And despite being faithful, he was still thrown into prison. He finishes this chapter in seemingly a worse place than where he started. He must now start all over again, fighting to trust that God is good and God is in control. For Joseph, a big part of that fight meant fighting the desire to defend himself. Joseph knew the allegations that were made against him were false. And yet he seems to make no attempt to defend himself. It seems that rather than defend himself, Joseph was entrusting his defence to someone else. A man named R.T. Kendall puts it like this. When Joseph didn't defend himself, it meant that God himself would take over. Friends, this is perhaps our greatest battle. Like Joseph, we stand accused. Not before Egyptian officials, but before God. The accusation is that we have failed in thought and word and deed to honour God as our creator and as our king. The proposed punishment is separation from God and ultimately death. The most important decision you will ever make is will you attempt to defend yourself or will you cry out to God as your only defence? If the Bible story ended with Joseph, then all we would have is a man to imitate. But thankfully, this isn't the end. These events point us to the big story of the Bible. They point us to the one who came not only as an example, But as a saviour, like Joseph, Jesus was falsely accused. And he too chose not to defend himself because he knew that it was only through his death on the cross 
that he would be able to defend his people. Every day as Christians, we must fight a battle. And part of that battle is not imitating Potiphar's wife. When she keeps Joseph's cloak, she was collecting evidence and trying to convince other people of what she knew wasn't true. Do we do the same? Are we trying to defend ourselves by building a case of all our good works? We're trying to make it look like we're better than we are. We're trying to make it look like we're able to defend ourselves. Will we do that desperately looking around for evidence, desperately trying to prove that we're good enough? Or will we acknowledge that we are guilty and that our only hope is to come to the one who is able to defend us because he is the one who bore the punishment of his people. Becoming a Christian is not a call to an easy life or a comfortable life. It is the call to a battle. Christians should fight to trust God. They should fight against temptation. But even more than that, they must fight to see that Jesus is our only defence and our only hope. The Christian battle begins and ends in the knowledge that Jesus is calling us to a battle that he has won for us and he won it on the cross. Will you trust in him and trust him to be your great defence and your great reward this morning? and every day.